to welcome everyone to week two of the study of the book of Revelation and end times. I look forward to being with you this week as we look at chapter one. Okay, well, it's 1030. I'm sure people will be joining us along the way, but I wanted to welcome everybody back to our study in Revelation and the end times. Look forward to um, the opportunity that we have to study God's Word together. So why don't we begin with a prayer, and then we'll get into chapter 1. Heavenly Father, thank you again so much for the opportunity we have to gather and study your Holy Word. I pray that your Word... Truly speak truth to us. Let uh, Give us discernment in the midst of our discussion. Give us community in the midst of our time of fellowship as well. And, and thank you again for all that you continue to do in each one of our lives individually and in our church and, our, and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we sort of had the foundational side of things last week. We talked about how we would be looking at the book of Revelation, how we could interpret it in some forms or fashion, as well as what do the different, maybe fictitious interpretations sort of get us off track. And uh, I would say the unbiblical kind of uh, interpretations as well. That gives us a little bit less fear moving into some of the imagery that we're going to even see today. And so I draw us back to God remains consistent throughout his holy scriptures. He remains consistent throughout history. And so when we look back at some of the images that we will actually even see today, we can look back into the prophets, Old Testament, even look into the New Testament and other writings, and we can see consistency there. Does that give us the exact answer? I would say it gives us close to the answer of what is being seen by John, but it um, there could be some things that are a little off from our standpoint since we're 21st century Christians and not 1st century Christians. Again, the first century Christian would be able to translate this. There possibly even could have been more of a code back then and slang language that we don't understand that was passed around in early Christians that we don't fully know about or possibly even the the seven churches that John was uh, writing to through Jesus' words. So that kind of brings us into the first chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, because we're going to discuss some of the important things that we see throughout Revelation, but it sort of warms us up. So here's what 1 through 3 says in chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So we talked a little bit about verse 1. We, we, we hit on a couple other of these verses last week as we prepared to move into Revelation. Revelation is an uncovering. 
Revelation is an insight. When we hear the revelation of Jesus Christ, this is an uncovering of Jesus Christ and, and what God has gave him to show to the church, to show to the servants, his servants. And it is, you could say, an apocalypse. Uh, again, we modern people think, I mean, this is an end of times thing. This is a horrible battle thing. This is a war. This is a terrible disease. That's not apocalypse. Is more of an apocalyptic journey, a style of writing, a style of narrative. And so it's important for us to understand that. And we're going to encounter that again. And there was a little handout I gave you, a couple of handouts. And, and there's an important part of that I thought it would be interesting to give to you about apocalypse, where you can see... In one of the handouts, it says the divisions in Revelation and Matthew's mini apocalypse. You can see the consistency of utilizing this sort of symbolism, the apocalyptic journey. And so that's there for your own reference in light of what we talked about last week as well. So this is the revelation of Jesus, the uncovering, the um, unveiling insight into this. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, the ultimate unreveal, you know, the revealing of God. John says in verse one that this will soon take place. This is a tense that he uses in Greek that means not, it's not gonna just happen. Like it's not stuff that's going to happen there in the future, it's actively going to take place. So it's actively, this is an active tense. And so that's very important for us to understand. He talks about an angel here and an angel's a messenger, right? And we can understand that. John is the author. We're attributing this to him. It says that he is a servant. Your Bible might say slave, might say bondservant. This is a word we hear the Apostle Paul use a lot at the beginning of his letters as well. The author is a bondservant, a slave, a servant. And this word really means someone who is absolutely possessed by God in the sense of he is the absolute possession of God. Okay, and so this is, this is, his whole life is about God, and so God sort of owns him, and so that's a, that's a big descriptor, okay? Verse 2, we hear that he, this testifying is happening, this, this bearing of a witness is so vitally important, and it's a bearing of the witness of the word of God, it's a bearing of the witness of the gospel, the good news, so that's the word of God, that's the gospel, that's the good news and what Christ has done for us. And it's, he's bearing of that. And it also says that he saw firsthand. So he has firsthand knowledge. He saw these things. He was, he was there. Whatever realm, spiritual realm, dream realm, whatever it was, this apocalypse journey, he literally saw these things. God gave him these visions to see these, these things happen. Now, in verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So we have this blessedness, we have this beatitudes that come, that come to play in the, in the book of Revelation. We hear the beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, chapter 5, and here we hear who is blessed. There's three things that we need to remember. 
the person who reads God's word, the person who hears it, uh, we'll touch on that in a little bit about what that really means, wisdom, and the person who keeps it. So reads, hears, and keeps. And those are very important to how we should hear the word of God. We don't just need to hear it. We don't need to just read it, but we also need to keep it. So it all works together, okay? And there's seven blesseds. Um, I think William Barclay, Barclay was a commentator, and he probably pointed these out. But I, I love the Beatitudes that you can find in Revelation. And you have a sheet on that. I, I gave that to you. And it starts here in verse 3. But blessed is the person who reads and hears and keeps. And then it jumps to Revelation fourteen thirteen. Blessed is the dead who die in the Lord. Those who actually are friends of Jesus on earth. Okay. The third one is blessed uh, who, uh, who are awake and a watchful pilgrim, basically. And that's from Revelation 4, 16, 15. And that is meaning that Peter says that as well. He says, you know, be alert and sober. So you can't just be flying through life doing your own thing. You really need to be alert. You need to be awake. You need to be a watchful pilgrim. And you'll be blessed for that. The fourth is blessed... Uh, of those who are invited to be guests of God, basically, and that's from Revelation 19.9. And then Revelation 26, blessed are those who share in the first resurrection, those uh, whom death does not touch, okay? And you're going to be blessed because you have faith in Christ, and thus death will not touch you, okay? And that's the first resurrection. You'll share in that. Blessed... In Revelation 22, 7, are those who keep the words, who are, this is where wisdom comes in, who are a wise reader of God's words. Wisdom, if you uh, had took my study in Proverbs with me or have studied Proverbs, you should understand that wisdom, godly wisdom, is not just knowing something, but it's actually doing what you know. And so that's very important. It's not just knowing all about the Bible, it's actually putting it into play it's the action side so that's that you know faith without works is dead um you know it's it's more than just having a a knowledge of something it's actually put in play so that's wisdom blessed are the wise really and then the seventh one is blessed are those who do his commandments hear and obey and, and live a Christ-like life. And it's almost a repeat, but that's Revelation twenty-two fourteen, And so you have all the verses there in your little sheet. And I think that's important to, to know that that's tied in to other parts of the Scripture that say we're blessed when we do this. This is a citizen of God, a kingdom-type person who does these things. Any thoughts, questions about any one through three and, and those blessings? <clears throat> okay, so now we're going to get into a, a dramatic sort of thing. John is, he's not, he's in the midst of this vision, and he's telling us about it. He's sort of setting it up, and so there's a lot here that we're going to see that John sees, okay? Um, we don't get to hear God or Christ speak yet, but we get to, he's setting the, the scene here for us, and so It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So John is writing to these seven churches. Um, And 
He says, grace to you, peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, there's a lot in there, and we're going to cover that. Okay, and now we're starting to get into the sevens, and that kind of freaks people out as well. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom priest serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. Okay, and I'm going to end right there in verse 7. We're going to go back and we're going to check in because there's a lot of information we need to know right here. So, we hear that first thing, seven churches. The number seven is a number of completeness. It's a number of perfection in all apocalyptic literature, Christian literature, early Christian literature, even Jewish literature. And so it is used 54 times throughout the book of Revelation. And you could, you could say, okay, these are specific churches that John's writing to because Jesus tells them to and he calls them by name. But also, you can think of it as the, the completeness of all churches. So, so Jesus is speaking words to all churches, the complete church, the seven churches. Now, I'm not reading into that. It doesn't really bring a uh, challenge to God's character by saying that. It's, it's more of a symbolic understanding. So you can literally, you can say we're not literalists, but we were talking, you can literally say this is seven churches, okay? Totally understand that. But you can also say, hey, this is a message for all churches, okay? And these seven churches sort of describe all churches and some of the problems they might have been facing at those times. So these are in Asia, Asia Minor, and then it says, uh, peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And that's a, that's a cool way of saying God, the Father, okay? And then it says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And we're like, what the heck is that? Basically, you got to dive into these are, this is the, the Holy Spirit, okay? Speaking of the Holy Spirit. Why do we say that? There's seven spirits that actually in Old Testament are referenced, okay? In Isaiah chapter 11, if you're taking notes, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 and 3, it says this. It says, In the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of fear, okay? So the spirit of the Lord... Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. So those are all seven sort of spirits is a reference back to this sort of completeness of the Holy Spirit. Those are all descriptors of the Holy Spirit as well. They're a counselor. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom, knowledge, be able to interpret things. So all that, that of course, we're just assuming that, but I would say that is an scholarly educated understanding of what's being said so what we're seeing here is the development of the trinity the father the holy spirit and then it says and from jesus christ the faithful servant 
the firstborn of the dead. So we have a listing of the Trinity here in Revelation. Father, Holy Spirit, and Son. And you think, well, that's different than what I usually hear it said. This would be what's called the liturgical listing of the Trinity. Okay, the liturgical listing, not the theological order. Okay, theologically, we would say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the liturgical. So we look at the Father, the Holy Spirit, and uh, the Son. So very helpful for us to understand that. There's some reference, again, back to Isaiah and another apocalyptic-style literature. So verse 6 is a reference to Isaiah as well. Isaiah 61, 6 says that they are to be a kingdom of priests serving his God and Father. Not only do we hear Peter say that we're part of a royal priesthood, right? Uh, But we also hear the Old Testament. We hear it multiple times in the Old Testament. And Isaiah 61.6 is another reference to that, that we basically are the priest, the kingdoms of priests. So Jesus is this witness, this firstborn of the resurrection. Jesus did some things to make him the priest, to set us free. We're going to see another picture of Jesus here in just a moment. But we're also called to be the kingdom of priests. And we should then, verse 7 says, Look, he is coming with the clouds. Is he coming right now? Was he coming before? This is an overview of what John saw. Okay, it's uh, you kind of have to. We part of apocalyptic literature is you skip around in time, and so he is telling of everything that he saw basically. And so we need to have confidence. This is what John, I would think, was telling us is we need to have confidence of Christ's return that he is going to come, and sinner and saint will see him. Okay, is he going to be in the clouds? It's going to look like that. I don't know. You know, that's how John described this. Again, he's describing things from a first century Christian's understanding of the world. So and he's seeing some pretty spectacular stuff as well. Now, the last part of that verse is so it is to be or so let it be, which also is the word amen. So that's what it means. Amen. Amen. It's a double amen right there. That's what I say at the usually the end of my prayers, my benediction, amen, amen. So it's, so let it be, so let it be, or amen, amen. So any thoughts on any of that stuff? Those are some good, helpful things. Anybody confused about anything? Or think we're, yeah, yes. Right. The firstborn uh, in resurrection. So, firstborn of the dead. So, he was the first to technically be resurrected. So, that's what that means. Um, That's the phrase. So, again, how do we know that? Because that's the phrase. That's what's utilized throughout history. The traditional understanding as we look back into the first century, they would have understood it like that. So... Great question. Okay, well, let's look at um, verse 8 just briefly here. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he is the Alpha and the Omega, Greek. Uh, He is A to Z. He is the first and last. He is completeness. Okay, he's everything in the alphabet. 
He's everything from the first to the last. God is eternal. God is almighty. Why does that why is that so important? Well, if you remember last week we talked about the counter narrative that was going on with the kingdom, the empire of Rome. And John is writing against that. Rome's theme, one of their themes was eternal Rome. So Rome would never die, ever. It would go on forever because it was one of the longest lasting empires, right? And so it would go on forever. Well, technically, John's saying, no, you know, God's saying, I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm eternal, not Rome. Okay, so this is starting that counter narrative. Again, a lot of this is written in code because this would be subversive language if you and I just wrote and said, you know, we were in a persecuted empire and we said, you're not going to last. This is the thing that's going to last. God's going to last or the church is going to last. That's calling people out. And he was writing more in code, let alone this was an apocalyptic literature, okay, and an apocalyptic journey. So any questions on that? That's pretty, it's kind of easy to understand, and we know the background of why we need to understand that and why it's being said by God in this context. Okay, let's go on. You can interrupt anytime if you have a question that pops up. We're going to look at verses 9, and I'll probably read through 15. It says this, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom, and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to uh, Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to uh, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the golden lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. So there's a lot of imagery there, and we can summarize it here in just a moment, but let's look at verse 9. Here's John. We know he's the guy telling the story. He experiences persecution. He's a refugee, possibly, of war. He's found himself on this island of Patmos, most likely imprisoned, we know, and because of his patient endurance, because of his faith, because of his testimony. And he is placed there. Now he's witness to Jesus, and that's what's got him here. But he's on this island on a Sunday, whether he's in prayer, he's in a special time of worship, he's in something's going on where he's contemplating, whatever it is, on the day of the Lord, which would be Sunday, the day of resurrection, he is what's called as taken up into ecstasy or um, lifted beyond time into this apocalyptic journey and adventure. And so that's what we begin to, again, see what he sees. And he's writing this because the voice of God tells him to write it to the seven churches, uh, uh, and he lists those seven churches for him. Now, we've heard of Laodicea, 
And we'll talk more about that when we, we get to the churches next week. We've heard of Ephesus. Now, some of these other ones are new. We haven't really heard of them all. Uh, we know the name Philadelphia, but we really we don't always know what the characteristics of these churches are, are, are about. And so we will look at each one of those churches next week and, and the characteristics of them as we travel through. Now, what images do you see here? And what fascinates you in this text here? What, what fascinates you? And we're going to talk about some of the meaning, but what's fascinating? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a... Uh, um, so we have the seven churches, which y'all have that seven churches handout, and again, we'll get into that next week. We'll start those the letters. But So verse 12, these seven golden lampstands are a picture, actually, of another sort of prophetic scripture that comes from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2... Um, it says, uh, what do you see now, he asked. And, and this is an angel who's talking, okay? So there's consistency here in the spiritual realm. And he says, I answered, Zechariah, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. Around the bowl are seven lamps, each having seven spouts with wicks. Okay? And so... If you are also, if anybody took my tabernacle study, we understand that the lamps were fueled by oil, and the lamp internally, the lamp stands internally in the Holy of Holies area uh, as you move into where the ark was and all that stuff. That this is this is all a similar, consistent picture. So you have these seven golden lampstands, and it's referencing. The spirit uh, of God that that lives within the very power that lives within these churches. Okay, the Holy Spirit is the thing that empowers these churches. So, basically, I saw seven golden lampstands. These lamps are later on. They're warned that He will take their lamp away. Meaning, if you continue down this road, you're going to not be my church anymore because you're you're worshiping something else or you're misrepresenting me and and so the spirit over over time will your heart your heart will be hardened and and my spirit will be taken from you okay and that is a conscious decision that followers of Christ make and the holy spirit so this would be a good way to look at the lampstands as the holy spirit okay um these things that empower the churches. So there's the Son of Man here. We get that language, of course. The Son of Man is the supreme messenger of God. We hear the Son of Man, uh, Son of God, Son of Man. I mean, those they're interchangeable, uh, and we hear those in the Gospels as well. How do we know that this would be Jesus? Well, he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest who is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash 
the high priest was, okay? And also the understanding of messianic uh, in Judaism, who the Messiah would be, would wear, would be the high priest. They would be, they would be wearing a long robe and a gold sash, okay? So this is an image that is common in their time, not so much in ours, you might say, oh, and I looked up and I saw this man or this woman in a black robe and they had a stole on. I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's similar imagery, okay? So this was the image of the Messiah, the high priest. This was an image of a person who was royal, okay? And he was no longer what? Jesus was no longer a criminal on a cross. He was the king. He was resurrected. He was still alive. He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. Is that kind of the imagery? Again, we're not trying to predict anything. We're not predicting the future. We're just understanding the first century imagery here, and it helps us understand what's being said. Um, So his head is white, or his head and his hair were white as white. In the Old Testament, if you want to look at Isaiah 1.1, you're going to hear a description of what is divine purity. Divine purity was always described as whiter, whiter than white, white as snow, white as, as wool, okay? And so that's pretty simple. So here is a divine being who is the king, who is the prophet, who is the priest, who has a gold sash on and a long robe. This is... The risen one, basically. And that's what 15 tells us. It says, describes him that his feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. These are all descriptions of a divine God that we can actually find in the Old Testament. I'm not going to reference all of them, but his voice was like a running water, was like, you know, Sounds of many waters. That, that's the descriptor of God speaking. So this is a divine, priestly God who's eternal. Okay? So that's, as you look through 11 through 15, you pretty much say, okay, Jesus shows up on the scene. Right? Pretty simple. We can get, and, and then the Holy Spirit is present. Okay? Um, and then it brings us to 16 to, mm, we we'll, might get to the end, we'll see. We, we got a lot to discuss here on, on some other things. So it says, in, go ahead, go ahead, yeah, questions, sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't that cool? Um, no, I have not. Uh, most of the time, people do kind of both. Um, the the only study I've ever heard um, on Daniel had a lot to do with predicting the future, and to me, the fictitious side of oh, because Daniel says this, then we know Revelation is this, and these are the evil people, and these are the good people, and. So instead of just taking as imagery, um, but it's the consistency that you're noting. That's the consistency of these images. They understood these things. These are first century Christians 2,000 years ago. They understood this stuff, you know, and these are Greeks as well. And they have heard this stuff spoken about within the church. So great point. Great point. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of tie in because remember, John recasts 
a lot of the Old Testament images. So remember that. John recast. Yes. Anybody have anything else on that stuff? Yeah. Right, a menorah. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the picture that we get from Zerubbabel or whatever, you know, and, and Zechariah and all that stuff. So, you know. Yep. Okay. In 16 through, we'll see. In 16, it says, in his right hand, so we get more imagery. I mean, this is, so it's Jesus, and he's like, in his right hand, he held seven stars. I'm like, what the heck? And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining with full force. That is an image, you know, for sure. What in the world does that mean? Well, luckily, he tells us in verse 20 what the stars are, right? It says, um, as for the mystery of the stars that you saw in my right hand this and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, okay? At least we have that. We don't know exactly what those angels are and what that means, but that's what the explanation is, okay? And, and then his mouth is a two-edged sword. We hear this probably a lot. We know this to be, um, Hebrews talks about this other places in Scripture too, but it's a sharp, two-edged sword. The Word of God is truth. It pierces your heart, right? pierces your mind. It's double-edged. It's powerful. Um, This is an image of power. Again, a counter-narrative to the power of Rome that Rome used might and oppression and conquering, but God uses his words, right? And which is awesome to think about. He uses his words to change hearts and minds and actions. And so this is a double-edged sword. So is Jesus now resurrected and all of a sudden he's like this weird-looking beast that has like some sort of sword? This is a this is an image. This is an apocalyptic image. So if you're looking for Jesus to return, he's not going to return, and he's going to have some sword sticking out, and he's going to like whittle it around and kill people. And I mean, that's so freaky, weird, and that's why we get all jazzed up about this. That's not that's not the understanding of when you read apocalyptic literature, the understanding of the symbolism, and and we have so many more places in Scripture that talks about God's word being a double-edged sword Um, so his truth his word okay and that's what jesus is coming with that's his weapon that's his power right and his face is shining like the sun in full force like this is a mighty being this is god this is divine powerful person right or thing um verse 17 when i saw him I felt my feet as though dead. So John just falls down and like worship. He's probably scared, right? Um, much, do you see the, the uh, image here of like the women who first saw Jesus on the Sunday of resurrection, resurrection Sunday, they fell down and like worshiped him. And then what does he do? So this is Jesus. He identifies himself. He says, he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. How many times did Jesus say that? He said that all the time to his disciples, right? Even after he was resurrected to the women, don't be afraid. And then he identifies himself. I am the first and the last. So 
Jesus always told this to his disciples that do not be afraid. And then again, he is the first and the last. He's the eternal one. He is the God. He is divine. And he goes on, he says in, in 19, uh, 18, and the living one. So he's not dead anymore, right? Remember, he's the resurrected one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever. Now, the last time John possibly saw Jesus was on that hillside where he ascended into heaven. He was taken up to heaven, um, and, and then they never saw him again. Maybe they did. Maybe they had other visions or appearances we don't know about. But this might be the, the last, you know, last time he saw him was some time ago. And Jesus is like, okay, I'm not dead. I did go to heaven, I did go to hang out with my father, but I'm not dead still, I'm still alive, I'm, I'm here. Uh, you can see me, you can feel me, you know, and I will always be alive. Now he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. This is a great line. You can always, you can write this out in your Bible if you want or your notes. Death has gates, but Jesus has the keys. And that's kind of a cool little way to think about it. Death has gates, but Jesus has the keys because Jesus has conquered death. You will die at some point in time on this earth, but you will not stay dead because Jesus Christ has the keys to death. And so that's, that's pretty cool to, to think about. Now, verse 19, Now write what you have seen and what is and what is to take place after this. So write down, this apocalyptic journey that you're a part of and that you're in, enduring and, and involved in, write down what's being revealed to you so other people know about it. And then we get into verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, the Holy Spirit-empowered churches, okay? This, this picture of the spirit of the church. Now, why do I say that? There's seven lamps, there's seven churches, okay? There's seven lamps and seven churches, sort of this, this picture of a menorah type thing, but the church is not the light, okay? It is just a vessel for the light, okay? And that that it goes along with what we've been talking about is that just because it's it's like a privilege for the church to shine the light of Christ and that church can forfeit their vessels okay their their ability to shine Christ if they want to it's a privilege again to shine for Jesus but you can choose not to shine for Jesus not only personally but as a church as well and so we hear later on as we see in chapter 2 that, that those lampstands can be taken away. So that Holy Spirit representation within the church can be taken away, okay? And so got a lot of sevens here. We got a lot of representation of, you could say, you know, in my right hand is the, is the, the perfect representation of the, the Holy Spirit and the seven angels or the seven churches. I mean, there's a lot of sevens here. Now, what are those angels? That's the big question. I would say this is kind of where we've lost the code. Um, we can just guess at this sort of thing. Now, this is not going to cause us to have a fictitious understanding. It's not going to cause our theology to go bad to why we think about this. But this is where we can think of different things, and we might not agree, okay? 
we can say they're, they are actual angels, okay? Messengers, angels, angelos, it's used 50 times in the book of Revelation, okay? So it's a popular thing. It might mean the bishops of those churches that actually, like, or pastors, the, the, the bishop that controlled not only that church and, and oversaw it, but also the other smaller churches around it that we don't get named, or it could also be uh, the pastors of those churches. It might mean a literal guardian angel as well. I mean, we don't know, right? Maybe there's a spiritual realm and each church has a guardian angel, okay? We don't know. it. That's a possibility. And it could mean also the ideal church because you have seven, you have perfect, these, these ideal churches, uh, the seven stars are the ideal churches to me, you know, um, and you're going to find yourself in, and we're going to see characteristics. You're going to find people in a poor area who need to keep, keep strong in their faith. They don't have anything. You're going to find people in a wealthier area that have a lot of things. And they, so the ideal church altogether, you could think about it that, or it's the spirit of the church, the Holy Spirit's presence. Okay. So those are all the different, maybe some of the things that we could we could consider these angels of the seven churches to be. Any thoughts? Any comments about any of that? Anybody have anything they've heard different or about any of that? So <clears throat> here's a a recap of what you just saw. And if we think about it, and we take out the the strangeness. He turned around, John did, and he saw this spirit, these seven gold lamps, some sort of spirit there. And in the midst of the spirit, he saw, he, he heard God speak, then he saw the spirit, and then he saw the Son he saw Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He saw them all there, and Jesus looked, had a robe on, a gold sash on, and he was his hair was white, meaning he was divine. He saw the divine Jesus and fell down and began to worship, basically, or in awe of him. And Jesus placed his hand on his shoulder and said, don't be afraid. And so this is the thing that we got. And, and, and Jesus is holding in his hand like these seven precious you know, the churches or, or spirits of the church or whatever it might be. So that's basically what we've seen. And if you read all that, you get freaked out or you see some weird stuff, but he's got power in his voice and his words and the truth of the gospel. He's got, he's got the churches in his hand. He's got the Holy Spirit, you know, there with him and God. Anyway, so you get this whole picture. So that's kind of chapter one. So any other thoughts? <clears throat> okay, well, let's look uh, at the numbers handout. I, I sent this little, and if you have it on you, you can, or you can check it out another time. I thought it was a great little resource that I found, um, and it, it talks about sort of the, you know, all these numbers. Uh, there's four perfect numbers. It talks about three, seven, ten, twelve. You know, in the Bible. Um, you have a list of sevens. We hear seven churches, seven spirits. We had seven golden lampstands, seven stars. We got seven seals. We're going to have seven trumpets. We're going to, you know, 
we got seven angels. We're going to have seven crowns, seven plagues, seven bowls. I mean, tons of sevens, okay? Again, it means complete. Is there literal seven? Maybe so. Um, you could totally believe that. You're not going to be wrong. I don't know if it makes a difference in your understanding of who God is, but this is also words about these sevens have a lot to do with complete. So these are the complete plagues, the complete you know, trumpets, the complete angels, the complete spirit. You know, you can think that way. The perfect spirit, the perfect church, the perfect angels, you know, the, all those type of things. So um, there are some other meanings for seven, like the seven hills and things like that. And we'll, we'll talk about. There's a ton of numbers, one, two, three, four. I mean, they all mean something, you know, different, uh, you know, four we're going to see four a lot um that's a that's a big part of it we're going to see four winds that's a, a big you know four winds come from different directions we're going to see some beasts and they're going to have different looking faces and and bodies hybrid bodies we're going to see that because we know uh in apocalyptic literature and symbols that four means a particular thing in association with the earth, it's going to help us understand that a lot of times the four Gospels, the writers of the Gospel, the apostles that had to do with the Gospels and things like that were were characterized in a particular way, um, in almost like a secret way. You know, when you talked about Peter, you talked about this, when you talked about Mark, you know. So you're going to see that, um, and we'll tie that in later time in our study as well. Um, 12 is important. We know that's another perfect number, but it has a lot to do with the 12 tribes of Israel. We got the 12 apostles and um, things like that. So anything, any numbers that are, you know, 40, 70, anything, anybody have any comments on numbers or anything? <clears throat> Awesome. Okay. It's very interesting. One thing that I always like to tie into, and, and it was I was reading, I'd say, I forget exactly where I was reading, but in one of the Gospels, and Jesus basically says that um, he turns to all his disciples, and he says, at some point in time, you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. And when he says that, I think about these number 12 and, and the reference to the 12 apostles and stuff. And I always think of how much a God is a redeeming God. How, because Judas was a part of that group. Think about that. Judas was a part of the group when Jesus said, you will be judged. I mean, can you imagine... Um, and I don't know what that means, but could you imagine being one of the tribes of Israel and you're going to be judged by Judas, right? Um, Judas was the one that betrayed Christ and brought upon his death, earthly death and, and the, the circumstances that went with that. And then Judas killed himself, right? And so, but Judas is going to be one of those people. Um, and he didn't say, hey, the guy that you kind of read, vote in to replace and you know later on to be he doesn't say that and so if you take christ's word it's it's very interesting how he is redeemed he redeems people so i just think that's really interesting as well so 
Okay. I don't have anything else. We're done a little early today, which is fantastic. So that'll keep us. We'll pick up in Revelation chapter 2 next week. You can study the seven churches because we're going to go verse, verse by verse talking about the characteristics of those churches. You're going to get, a, this is where it becomes very relevant to you and to us. Because you're going to see characteristics not on your own life, but in your church's life. And the world, the modern world, uh, just like they dealt with in the past, in the first century churches. And so this is sort of the accountability time where we go, oh, yeah. And if we, you know, if we don't, if we don't live in the way that Christ wants us to live and we don't repent of those things, then there's some consequences. And so we're also going to hear the answer to what we've done wrong is to repent. Remember, that's one of the main themes is repentance. So you, next week, we're going to talk about one of the strengths of the church. You're going to hear the strength. There's like a threefold thing, a strength of the church, the failures of the church, um, and you're going to hear, uh, the. it's actually fourfold, the instructions of the church and then the rewards of the church. So every single letter to the, each seven of the churches all have a strength, a failure, what they've done wrong, the instructions of what they're called to do, like repent or do this or do that, and then the reward if you do this. And the rewards are somewhat different as well. So anyway, y'all be blessed and have a great rest of your week. Thanks for joining me. Bye, y'all. Blessings. You too.